I'd like for you to turn to the Gospel of John and to the epistle of 1 John. John chapter 15, first of all, and verse 17 through 19, and then in 1 John chapter 2. We'll look at those two passages to begin this morning. John chapter 15 and verse 17. These things I command you, that you love one another. Before I read the next two verses, let me make this comment. This is a commandment. Would you agree with that? It is not a suggestion. It is not one of the auto club's ideas. You know, we ought to do this and we ought to do that, but if we don't do it, it's okay. It's a commandment. It is a pointed statement specifically for his people to do something vital. I want to emphasize it that much because, again, I'm going to talk about love this morning. I'm going to talk about the enemies of Christian love because we are all called to be loving people. And yet you don't see a lot of it. And one of the great complaints of the world about church folks is that they're not always nice or kind. They don't always treat people well. They don't always pay their bills. They act rude sometimes, which evidences the fact that in spite of what they have heard or say they believe, they're not loving people in the way that God said to love. And he said here, this is a commandment that I make to you. In fact, he said, these things I command you that you love one another. Now, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, hate does not have to mean despise or have a malicious feeling about. The word hate in the dictionary, if you look it up, the word hate can also have the idea of just not wanting to. I don't want that in my life. No, no thank you. Something of that sort. It means to wish to avoid. Because we always think of hate as just, there were a lot of people who followed Jesus around who didn't have any malicious feelings about him like the Pharisees. They just avoided what he said because that's not what they wanted to do. So the enemy of them receiving him and being a part of what he was doing was due to something within them that didn't want to give up. But it was an enemy and it'll keep them out of heaven. But he said again, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. It doesn't really want anything to do with you. And verse 23 says, he that hateth me, he that rejects and wishes to avoid me, also wishes to avoid God the Father. If you hate me, you hate my father also. Then in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Obviously, the two great enemies from which the things I'm going to speak of come from, the two great things are the world and self or flesh. Everything that contradicts God, everything that opposes God, and everything that rejects God comes from those two components, the world and flesh. And it's the world that guides and steers and molds people into being fleshly or carnal people. Now, we cannot have friendship with the world and friendship with God. Remember James 4? And verse 4 says, if you be a friend of the world, you are an enemy of God. You're at enmity with God. Now, I have to say that through the years, that passage of Scripture hasn't meant much. 
Either we've been so worldly we didn't want to overdo it and talk about it too much because we got convicted talking about it, or it just is set aside because we don't understand what it means. As I mentioned the other day, the ministry of teaching is not so much a proclaiming the truth as much as explaining what the truth is. People don't mind proclamations. They don't mind preaching. They don't mind going to where they hear great sermons and stirring sermons. But the thing that disturbs people is when those words are identified and explained. And you begin to see exactly what God meant. I think one of the words that God used was in the Bible is the word comprehend. Comprehendeth it not, that they don't understand it. They like the sound of it. They like the feeling they get in going to a lively church with robust music and singing and all of that. But the thing that bothers and disturbs people is when the word, like a, well, like a two-edged sword, when the word begins to become clear and becomes inside of you a personal word from God and it begins to tell you how much of you is, well, fleshly or soulish, as the Bible says, and how much of you is spiritual. And it begins to show you how that you really don't like that. You really don't want to go that way. I really don't like that kind of an application in my life. I really like the direction I'm going and the way I'm going and the things are working pretty good for me. And please don't identify my success somehow with the world. Because I don't want to be a friend of the world, but I, <laughs> come on now. We got a lot of ways we excuse ourselves from living a holy life. And one of those ways is to just let the word go over our head and then we assimilate that or figure it out on our own terms. And then we figure our version of it is as good as anybody else's. And we thus have all these little different compartments where we can say, well, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. But if you don't want to do that, that's fine too. You just figure it out. Everybody do whatever you believe you ought to do. And the word no longer is clear. No longer is like a sharp sword. It's just a a blunt instrument that you get over. And consequently, the effect of an unidentified, unclear word, of a non-convicting word, laws in our heart. Without that, we basically go through the motions of Christianity. We sing the hymns and attend the meetings and give and all that. But it never changes our lives because there's a whole lot of things in us that the world dominates. It is in control. It is the motivator. It is the thing that brings us forth. What he's saying, verse 16, he said, the lust of the eyes. He said, all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes. You see things and then you want it. And then you're told you can have it with no money down. No interest, no payments till 2040. And Get it now. You don't have to wait. Patience is a non-factor in the world. Unless you go to a fast food restaurant. But you don't have to have that to get things. You don't have to wait. The world doesn't require you to pray and hold fast until or to overcome. The world doesn't require that. The world just requires you to follow its systems. If you want to get well, you don't have to pray and, and wait for God to do something and go through pain and difficulty. There's a better way. The world offers you something easier and for most part for the world, it's much better. And to imply that that's not the way that God would want us to do things is to invite all kinds of criticism and so forth. What message have we ever heard that's been more criticized than the message of divine healing? I mean, people really have heard that. They tried it and it didn't work. They didn't realize their life was messed up in other ways and it was a hindrance to their faith. But in, in spite of that, boy, you talk about healing. People don't want to hear. Talk about Christmas. Talk about holidays and all the fun and chestnuts roast and all of that kind of stuff. And to say that that's not God, teach on it. And people get offended. I'm not coming back to that church. People don't want to hear what God has to say because essentially, fundamentally, and basically, human nature hates God. That is, it loathes His way. It avoids at every cost His way of doing anything. And yet, 
when the doctors say no, when times fall apart and the world is falling apart, they run to God and beg for help. And then when he doesn't help them, then they blame him for everything. It's because there is essentially this hatred of God, hatred of his word, hatred of his ways, and people avoid that with all their heart. But he said all that was in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, none of it is of God. It's self, the carnal man. Remember Romans 8, verse 6, verse 7. He talks about if a man is carnal, he cannot please God. The carnal mind is enmity against God. The world out there knows that to get my attention and to make me a slave to its system, it has to get my attention. Oh, the world's advertisements and the world's ways, people you know, where you live, how you were raised, grew up, all of that stuff affects how you think. And boy, the carnal mind begins to oppose God, and it does, and you know it does. If you at this day are a partaker of the world and you've latched onto its system and you're comfortable with it, counting on it and confident that it's gonna work and won't fall apart, you don't know it won't, but you hope it doesn't. And then somebody comes along and said, but that's not the way God wants us to do it. Now you did that because you didn't want it to do it God's way. You avoided his way. You didn't want to do that. They get offended. They get offended because truth hurts. As Isaiah said, when he said, you know, truth has fallen in the streets. People don't want it anymore. They even told Isaiah, prophesy what to us? Illusions. Illusion is a made up story. It doesn't have to be true to make me feel good. Preach a lie. Make it sound good. Make me feel like I'm okay so when I walk out of there, I feel good about me. Because that's the carnal mindset. It's all about me. And if you don't take that to the cross... If you don't get delivered of that in this life, I doubt you'll be a happy camper at the end of your life. I really believe that. Jesus did not die for us to be religious. Jesus did not come to this world so that we'd have a nice place to go and hear nice sermons. He not only came and died for us to be delivered from our sins, but God raised him from the dead and he ever lives as a smelter and a refiner of silver and he shall refine the sons of Levi and everyone he receives he chastens because at the end of it he does not want to condemn you along with the rest of the world so he does a lot of things in your life if you're without chastisement this morning if your life isn't really burdened or you're not dealing with stuff in your life you got to get rid of it you better be thinking about what you're doing God will never leave his own alone. He that started a good work. He said for his own, he would deliver you from the snare of the fowl and from the noise and pestilence. He doesn't do that for everybody. Everybody doesn't experience that. Some do. He said that he is able to make you. He will bring you before his courts with joy. He will rejoice over you, Zephaniah said. He does that for one reason. Because he loves you. He doesn't have to. He's not required to. But he chooses to. And it's because God loves us. Because he has given us of himself. That we are able to be what he wants us to be. Now we've been talking about love. For the last few weeks. I find it. Strangely, at this time in my life, after all these years of everything else, I found this is one of the most interesting yet most demanding, soul-searching subjects in the Bible. Bigger than us. Past finding out. Superseding knowledge itself is the love of God. And I came to this conclusion. I'll share it with you again. For us to love God is, I think, meant for us to commit ourselves, our ways our resources, whatever and whoever we are, to God to serve Him and to live the way He said to live. That means everything the Bible says, I take it to heart 
as this is what I must do. If I've been doing just the opposite of that, it's that cross message. You crucify the flesh, the carnality, the worldliness. And there's so much of us that's of the world. Has been, at least God brought you to him. You were very worldly. Boy, that was weak, but it was true. Let me, amen for you. Amen. None of us came to the Lord cleansed. None of us came to the Lord without being a project. None of us came to the Lord having arrived. That's it. In fact, this cleansing work that God, I'm talking about, this work that God has committed himself to you to do is a work of taking you from dirt to soap, from vulgarities to cleanness, from old ways to new ways. He doesn't do it all at once. He does it little by little and always requires your cooperation. But he knows how to get your cooperation because he is God. And the work that he is doing in you will cause you to respond to him. He doesn't do that to everybody. Churches are full of people who literally don't know what you're talking about. And yet there are always those that are saying, oh boy, that is so, so true. Oh God. Because God is going to cleanse you. He that hath begun a good work in you will complete it. See, that's how he loves you. He loves you by knowing that being sinners, you can't relate to him. You can't know the joy of the Lord. His human flesh, he created it. And yet it fell into sin and it can't enjoy him. He doesn't need you. You need him. And so he sent his lamb, Jesus, into this world to die on the behalf of his people that he was going to save. And he willingly laid down his life, a lamb without spot, blemish, or any such thing. And he laid it down. He went to the cross. He opened not his mouth. No excuses, no complaints. He died. We didn't understand. You know, we just figured he was just another sinner. We esteemed him not, Isaiah said. And then God raised him from the dead, and that changed everything. That changed it all. For some people, it was a curious thought. Raised from the dead. <laughs> And for others, it was the joy that changed the world. Because the people who saw him were the people who lost all fears after that. They went out. They had no fear of the world because he's alive. We saw him. We handled him. He spoke to us. We watched him go back up. And he told us about things to come. He breathed upon us. He said, I will show you things to come. He said, I'm going to send my spirit to live inside of you and you will be guided into all truth and you shall know the things to come. The world doesn't know what you're talking about because he didn't send his spirit to the world. He sent it to his own. Who are his own? Those whom the father gives him. Now, unless you're not a good Calvinist this morning, let me me again. You did not choose God. You did not just say, you know, I think I'm going to get convicted this morning. I'm about 85 years old. I think I ought to get a little convicted and get saved this morning. Can't do that. Salvation isn't up to man. It's all up to God. And whensoever, howsoever, wheresoever he chooses to apply his divine powers upon lost man to bring them to repentance, he does it. No man can tell him, why do you do this? Why are you doing this, God? Because he does as he pleases in the kingdom of man. And one day, what was the date? June what? 30th, 1968. Five minutes to 12. The Lord walked into my life. He knocked on the door of a crying soul. And he came in. It's never been the same since. 41 years. Never been the same. Never gone back. Don't want to go back. What I would go back to was death. I don't care how hard this life is. The alternative is death. And God 
sent his son, Jesus Christ, who came into my life and hopefully yours too, and began to love you. Smacked you a couple times because you weren't paying attention. But you wouldn't do that to your children, would you? I don't mean, you know, like my mother did me. I don't, I don't, I'm not talking about that. Have you ever dealt with your children because they weren't paying attention? Why? Leave them alone. Leave them, let them do what they want to do. Because the Bible says if you don't discipline your children, you don't love them. If a parent is not committed to the well-being of this child, not committed in any way to this child becoming a citizen of God's kingdom, no time teaching them and training them and correcting them and speaking right things to them, you don't love them. Because there's no commitment to their well-being. You're just glad when they get raised and, whoo, get out of here. That's not love. Love is a commitment. One of the signs of the last days is a lack of family love without natural affection. It has to do without natural family feelings. Look at abortion. If you don't know these are the last days, just think of that worn out word you hear all the time, abortion. That's a good word to use to describe the last days. When a woman hates the life that is in her body, even though it got there by sin, when she hates the bringing forth of a life, so much because it interferes with her routines and her pleasures and her job or her career. And so she terminates that life. It is good evidence of the fact that she hates what was in her. All she wanted to do was take its life and kill it, get rid of it. It is amazing. It is amazing when love begins to work in us that God who does his work in us, his commitment to us, brings us guilt and convictions and, and makes us desire right and we wrestle and wonder if we'll ever make it, yet he encourages us. And all of this life is being drawn from glory to glory to glory into a walk of which God is bringing you to him. Maybe not everybody. He didn't say everybody in his kingdom was gonna make it. He said he's going to send his men in the last days to separate the sheep from the goats, didn't he? From the good fish and the bad fish. You remember that? He would send his reapers. Many will say, Lord, Lord. And he said, I never knew you. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom. So it's not religious activity. It's something that's going on in the hearts of God's people. And he's changing these people because he loves them. Now, God's love in you will be manifested through you. If he loves you and he is loving you and this loving work of God in changing you into what he does not have to judge at the end is going on in you, then we will know it by several other things that you will do. Turn to John 13 for just a moment. Look at verse 34. We read this a while ago. Let's read it again. He says, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. How? Now we have taken the word as basically out of the whole program here and we love one another as it seems fit. If you perform, I love you. If you don't perform, I don't. But that's pretty carnal. That's pretty selfish. That's the way the world does it. And if we love like that, if we reject people because they don't perform well for us, then it's evidence that we're still quite worldly. And we're still enemies of God in a sense there. Now, do you remember Matthew 20? Somebody said, what is the great commandment in the Bible? What is the great commandment in the Bible, Lord? And he said, the first and great commandment and you don't find this in the Old Testament, but it's what the Ten Commandments were about. The first four had to do with what he said first. He said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, and all, all your resources. You are to love, you're to commit yourself and your way to the Lord and allow nobody else ever to take that place. If you allow anything to get your commitment before God, you're not worthy of him and you're not his disciple. 
Now those are strong words, but they are meant to be strong words so we will be affected by it. But he said, the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And he said, and the second is like it. The commandments, verse 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. From parents to adultery, stealing, lying, covetousness. He said, all of those things come under the second heading. Love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you would lie to you? How many of you would sneak in your bedroom and steal money out of your drawer? How many of you would go into your closet and steal some nice pair of shoes or shirt you had in there? Well, that's stupid. You'd say, well, it is stupid. We wouldn't do that to ourselves. How many of you would smack yourself on the cheek if you looked in the mirror one day and you didn't like the way you looked? Well, you'd be all blue. Unless you're young and pretty like all these little girls around here are. But you take care of yourself if you're cold, you try to get warm. If you're hungry, you try to eat. If you need to put something on, you try to put something on that's decent because you care about yourself in that sense. You do represent God, don't you? Somebody needs to tell this modern dress today that, you know, when you come here, you do represent him. It ain't like, hey, man, I'm going to church this morning in my flip-flops. No. I'm going to church. Now, I'm not saying you can't wear flip-flops. Listen, it ain't your flip-flops, it's your heart. So if you love your neighbor, there's ways that you'll do it. He said in, again in verse 34 there, he said, A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Or that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also should love one another. How do you love your neighbor as yourself? Well, you care about him like you'd care for yourself. Would you want your dog barking all night long to keep you awake? There's so many illustrations that you could give. You think of others before you think of yourself. Think of this verse in Ephesians 2, esteeming others as better than yourself. Now, would God do that kind of a work in you? Listen to me esteeming others as better than you. Submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of the Lord with regard to God and his ways, which I'm trying to live, I am willing to treat you as better than myself and honor you. That's what God does in your heart. You don't treat somebody well and honor somebody because they deserve it because you didn't deserve his love. He said, as I have loved you. How many times does the New Testament speak of us being long-suffering and tolerant of weaker brethren or abusive brethren? I mean, we're all different levels of growth here. Some haven't picked up on the deeper life yet. And they're apt to act like they haven't heard what you've heard. And you're tempted to get upset, but God says, I didn't get that upset with you. So you learn to love them just like you've been loved. If I have loved you and been very tolerant and long-suffering of you, you be the same way with them. Because that's what I want you to do. Listen to this. In this, the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. <laughs> Pretty clear. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Then I would have to say in, in my brief tenure here in this assembly, this is the only church I've ever been a pastor of. Maybe too long, but that's the way it worked out. 20, what, seven years? I have seen more fighting and backbiting and ugliness and meanness take place I'd have to assume by this that this happens with people who hate God. Let me just read it again. Let me just see if it works. He that knoweth not God, for if it's God who runs your life, you love. You don't love because people are loving. You love because he compels you to. A wife does not love her husband because he deserves it. 
She loves her husband because she made a covenant with him one day to love him in spite of what he does. They used to say for better and then richer or poor and sickness and health. And we left those last two out. How would you like to be married to somebody who wasn't committed to your well-being? What if your husband really didn't care how you felt? Didn't care what you thought? Didn't care what's going on in your life? Never really cared about talking to you to, to know how you're doing? Had no tenderness towards you? How would you feel if he was like that? He just left you $100 a week to buy groceries and he was gone out with the boys on the golf course or whatever. Would you say he loves you? Well, of course not. He's not committed to you. Does that mean you shouldn't be committed to him? Absolutely not. You made a covenant to, you do it anyway. If he's unfaithful, you remain faithful. You hold fast to what you committed yourself to because if you say you're committed to somebody and then you're not committed to somebody, where's the love? The love of God is an unceasing love. God did not begin to love his elect in order to quit loving them. How many of you know what Romans 5, 8 says? But God commended his love toward us while we were yet sinners. What was so lovely about you that God says, my, what an attraction. We all chased cars. We were a bunch of dogs. Living in this world, drunk, running around, hanging out, speaking vulgar, doing some vulgar things. Thinking vulgar, ugly. He went to a cross for you while you were like that. For one reason. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. That's way better than you could ever attain to. But he did it because he loves you. And he brought that life to you. To live inside of you. So quit your crying when God's dealing with you. Because if he left you alone, you perish. And he's dealing with you about loving other people. That abusive person. That person who slandered you or is slandering you. That person who speaks against you or speaks about you. Of course it's unloving. Will you be unloving and kind? And if so, you're the same as they are. God has never began loving anybody and quit loving his people. But I don't think you can say that in the regard of God committing himself to the well-being of a person to identify love, that he's done that to the world, because I don't believe that. The world doesn't care if God loves them or not. Religious church people don't care if they love other people or not. They do what seemeth right in their own eyes, and that's what they fight over. But the word of God says that if a man loves the Lord, he will love his brother. If a man say, for example, in 1 John 4, 20, if a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? In other words, you show that you love God whom you have not seen by your willingness to love others. Now, loving others is a commitment. Let's start at the front here. If a man is a true called ministry, his commitment, first of all, is to God to serve him in the way that God wants him to serve him. Thus, the man goes to God's people, his sheep, and he commits himself to their well-being in whatever his ministry is. If he's a preacher, then bringing them in. If he's a teacher, then making sure they understand what he's talking about, what God meant. Now, if you get mad at that, you don't stop loving people and you don't stop teaching. How many times have I sat in my little dark corner in years gone by? I'm not gonna go back, they don't like it. Jesus didn't say the church would like his word. The church is not full of people who love the Lord, but people who love the Lord are in his church. Loving each other is not easy. People can get on your nerves. They may be new and growing up and they want attention all the time or they want sympathy or they stay on something all the time and you think, oh, or the phone rings and if you've got that, I guess it's good. That caller ID. 
and you look and you think, oh. Now, some of the time it just says unknown caller or something. I just hit on and off. I like that. But then if you see that it's somebody who wants to talk and you think, <laughs> and you hit on and off and they call in and said, I called. Did you know that I called? Well, you can't say no because then you'd be a liar. And if you lied about that, it would evidence that you really don't love that person because God in you would say, of course, you know, he called. Well, you didn't call me back. And your conscience said, I didn't want to call you back. I don't want to talk to you. You talk too long. Sometimes you're really challenged to show that you do love. That you love other people. That you love their children. Even though sometimes they do things that you wish they wouldn't do, you love them because it's the nature of God to love. A man who can please his neighbor unto his neighbor's good, as Paul spoke in Romans 15. A man who is willing to love his neighbor to please him so that his neighbor is better off than he would have been if you hadn't have been there is a man who loves God. Because you care about people. You see, the whole basis for loyalty whether it's in a marriage or with God in the church or faithfulness or compassion, it all has to do with love. We don't just stop and pick and choose who we love. The good Samaritan didn't pick and choose who he loved. He just loved because there was a need. A man was beat up and he stopped and helped him. The religious folks didn't. It was this Samaritan who cared about a man's pains and his wounds. We've cared about people in other countries and we sent money. We can't go, but our money can go. Something called love was involved in your money as it went there and all the things that it did. I mean, it's because you care. We care about how somebody else is doing or you care about somebody else's needs. How many times have we generously donated to help people who had a bad time or were having a bad time? Many times. Because something of the love of God in you really cared. You would want that to happen to you, so you did that to them. As Jesus said in that Matthew 7, 12 verse, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. It's the way God wants us to live. And in John 13 and 35, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. How? That you have love one to another. That you really do care. That you really do commit yourself to another's well-being. You help a brother when he has the, you don't have to charge him. You just help him because it's, it's what's in your heart to do. This is what God does in your heart. This is the work of God. You just care. You just really care. You know, it's just like preaching. It's just not old little something that'll get something together. They'll be happy with it. No, it's got to have substance to it. You pray and you ask. And you ask God to lead. You know, Lord, this is the only time this Sunday will ever occur. There'll never be another July the 19th. There'll never be another July 19th. Never in all the rest of history. It'll never be another day like today. This precise moment that they can hear exactly what you said today. They can never hear it again. They may listen to a tape, but they miss something there. Because it's the word like that piercing sword while you're there. It's the effect of that moment. It'll never come again. Not this day. And so you pray that it'll have a, as I pray, that the word will have the effect you intended for it to have on everybody who is present. That they'll never forget something that you said today. Because it's those words that you say that turns our life into living according to what you said. And that's what you want from us. That's what God wants. Now, having said that as an introduction, what then could we say the world and self does that becomes enemies of our ability or willingness to love? What does it do? The first thing is covetousness. Greed avarice, covetousness. Would you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6? 
Greed is entirely the effect of the world upon a self-serving, selfish person. Now, it's not wrong to have desires. We can't contradict the word. The Bible says if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. If your desire is to be rich and famous, you're out of whack. That's not what he promised. You could be rich and you could be famous if God so chose to do that because through history, some of the great revivals happened because God did something spectacular through a nobody who became a somebody and wrote a book about them. But the point of it is that it's not wrong to have desires. It wouldn't be wrong to want a better pair of shoes or a house or maybe a car or a vehicle or a job. It's not wrong to want something better. It's wrong to be consumed with your life of just getting that. Your whole life is wrapped up in getting and having and obsessing. And it's true that a lot of people have done well in life, but it's also true the Bible teaches of a man who gets things but not by right. The book of Proverbs says, he that getteth riches but not by right, they shall abandon him in the end or they shall perish. So there is a right way of doing everything and a wrong way. But in 1 Timothy 6.10, he says, for the love of money, the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That's what they have done. Look at verse 9. I should have read that first. But they that will be rich, those who live to make money, those whose life's goal is to be wealthy. This is what happens to them in their pursuit. They fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition because the love of money does that to people. It does that to them. You begin to see all the lifestyles of the rich and famous and you aspire to that if you're a young person. Or you see folks in the church who just seem to do well. You don't know a whole lot about what they do that God honors and brings that into their life. You just see them do well. And you wish you had that. But you begin to violate that commandment about covetousness, wanting what somebody else has got, or wishing I was somebody like somebody else is. When you start living like that, and that becomes your dream and your goal and what your pursuit in life is all about, you can say for sure that the world has hooked up to you and you're in bondage to it because it controls you and it'll turn you away from the Lord into all kinds of foolish and hurtful things he spoke of in verse nine, temptations and snares and so forth. The love of money. I do not believe that the love of money is the root of all evil. I do believe it is a root. I believe there are people who have been embittered against somebody who have done a lot of ugly sins because of hatred of somebody. I don't think it had anything to do with money. They didn't gain anything from it. They didn't get anything back. They just wanted to get even or revenge. But the love of money, as several commentators say, is specifically a cause of so much evil because money does that to people who are captured by it, who live for it, who want just all of it that they can get. Notice the effect it has again in verse 19. Three things. A temptation. The temptation to get money is to give up something else. In the Christian context, there's a way the world says you get it, but you can't get it the way God said you should get it. You've got to do something about it. So you're tempted to do it another way. You are tempted to turn to another direction or another source to get all the things that you've set your mind and your heart and your desires upon. And you start cutting corners or you start cheating or lying. You make a lot of money and you look at your taxes, your income taxes. I do not personally believe that the tax system in America is good. I don't think it's right. I don't even think it's fair. But I pay it. And what I've got left, God makes it like the fishes and the loaves. It works. It's magnified. And 
Sam gets his for nothing and I get to keep what's left and I'm rejoicing. However, a lot of people begin to see this family makes $1.5 million a year. Would you like to make $1.5 million husband and wife? Would you like to pay $500,000 a year in taxes, income taxes? Say, why would the government get $500,000? They didn't help me do it. They didn't help me work. It's the way it works. So the temptation is, no, wait a minute. Wait, time out, time out. Now here's where the devil and the world and self comes in. All they're doing is blowing it on rockets anyway. Rockets and bailouts. I mean, we've, you know, General Motors have become government motors and you know, they're just taking my money. Wait a minute. So I think, okay, now I'm on a, where's my magic pen? You bought that on one of those promotions. You know, this pen can do wonders with your taxes. And you begin to change the numbers a little bit. You know, the eight becomes a big three. And you start modifying what really is true because you want to keep more of your money because of this lust for it. And you don't think it's fair. And so you start lying and you start cheating and you start violating the very things that God has called you to do. You're only in this world for a brief amount of time. Don't make a big deal out of money and how little you get or how much you got. Use what you got. God gives you richly all things to enjoy. Don't get lost because of a nickel or a bunch of nickels, if you want to put it that way. And the second thing he said in verse 19 is a snare. It's a trap. If you want more, you're going to have to start doing this. Well, I got to be in church on Sunday. Look, you don't have to be in church every Sunday. I mean, you can miss a little bit, can't you? What are you, you going to die if you don't go to church? Huh? What kind of church are you going to? So you start working. You start doing other things. I mean, the best time, some would say, to make a sale is Sunday morning because everybody's home. <laughs> so they start doing their work on Sunday morning. I go to church Sunday night. We don't have Sunday night church. I'll go, uh, I can't go Wednesday night because I'm ready to on Wednesday night. It becomes a snare. You become locked in to greed. You're living and cutting corners in order to get. That is not the Christian life. That is not how God shows you to do things. And when you reject his way and you avoid his way, it's a form of hate. I don't want to do it that way. I don't want to walk in that way. That's crazy. I'd be giving up all my money. And God would say, you wouldn't make no money at all if I didn't give you this. Read Deuteronomy 8. It is God who giveth thee the power to make wealth. God. And if he gives it to you, then... Trust him for it. Third thing he says, they fall into many foolish and hurtful lusts. You get money, you become well-to-do, and a new crowd, it comes into your life. The party crowd, the fun crowd, the glamour crowd, or the people who like to play money, investments, gambling. And you begin to see all the things that money can do. Look at the prestige you're getting. All these people are coming in because, well, you've got the big house on the hill and the two cars in the garage and a freezer full of chickens. Not two in a pot, you've got a freezer full now. And so you're doing pretty well. And people know you're doing well. And they kind of start hanging around you. Hey, how you? And you're invited to the big places and get to go to the big things. I haven't known a lot of wealthy people who once weren't but came wealthy I've known just, I can only think of one or two. Well, I can think of two now. I can think of one of them who was just an ordinary, zealous person when I first met him. Just lively. Him and his wife worked some kind of a job and were doing okay. Came to the meeting of Bible study out in Lexington, Kentucky back in the early 70s. And we were having a, a Bible study down there and, and it was a lot of fun. I didn't know everybody, but everybody had a smile on their face, and I liked that. And this fellow came, and he came to the front row, and he was so excited. Every week he was excited. I remember one week after the service was over, everybody had about gone, and 
And I was getting ready to leave, and he come running in the room. He said, Brother Tom, Brother Tom, whew, I thought you were gone. And I said, no, I'm, he said, I forgot to put money in the box. And he came in there, and he gave me his check. I thought, I don't, I don't. he said, no, he said, man, I, I'm getting so much more than what you got. That check, he said, I'm blessed so much. And he just, <laughs> and walked out. I think it was 90-some dollars, his check. That's pretty good in the 70s now. Before you look down your nose. <laughs> One night, the same fellow asked me to pray with him about a new adventure, a new product he was going to design and promote and pray. He asked, he said, can you pray with me? This was January of 1974. Could you pray with me that God will bless this? Well, we talked about an hour and they've talked about for his glory and honor of him and all of that. You know, God will bless whatever that you're willing to honor him with. Whether that $97 check you got or that $15,000 check you got, as long as he's honored with it and he's glorified because of, of he gave you this ability or this talent or this blessing, as long as he's in it, I can pray with. So we prayed and he went out. I understand. He did really well and became a wealthy man. And I never saw him again. Now, I'm not saying that he turned against the word. He had no reason to. But on the other hand, it might have been he got so involved with work and business and all the responsibilities that go with making money and satisfying customers, clients, or people that he no longer had that exuberant time for the Lord. And I don't think I ever saw him again. That was it. He just was gone. I've heard about him since. I'm, I guess he's doing well. I don't know. But I just know that sometimes, and maybe this is one of those times, because he might be doing really, really well. I just don't know it. From what I know is what I just told you. But if what I said is the way he is doing, this man got his eyes set on doing well with the product, which it did, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the product and the wealth it brought him uh, turned him from that zeal, that joy, that time with the Lord. Sadly, a lot of those people, when you see them years later, they drink a lot. They got that red face. They just drink a lot the party they hang around, you know, you smell alcohol almost any time. Or you hear about their women, they have these women, or some of the women have another man. And all of this crept into those praise the Lord lives. How did that happen? Because you got distracted. The devil saw you as a target and you were pretty easy. All he had to do was give you filthy lucre. The Bible calls it filthy lucre. Because it never measures up to what you thought it was going to be. Because now that you're wealthy and rich and got three cars in your garage, a bigger house, and two freezers full of chickens, you're not a happy man. You're a miserable man and your health is failing. And you could have had whatever you asked for. Ask and it shall be given. This is not the way to get it. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Ask and it shall be given. Learn to wait as God brings you all the blessings that you, you ask him for. Didn't God say to his people once, what more could I have done for you? What did you want that I didn't give you? And you turned from me to these, and I'll use my ugly word, these stupid idols, these wooden sticks that are set on a hillside that some craftsman was able to fashion with his knives and chisels into some kind of a god? And you think that stick, which once was a nice tree giving shade to somebody, who a man cut it down and made an idol out of it, you think that thing can hear? You think it can talk? You think it can relieve you or answer a prayer? People did that to God. They do it today too. Their idols and their gods are their accumulations. It's what I've got, what I can do, who I am. I worship me. I'm offended if others don't worship me. Look who I am. Look what I've done. Look at the books I've written, the places I've been, the crowds that hear me. You're corrupted. God can't even use a person like that. 
But Lord, didn't we not do this? Lord, didn't we do that? Didn't we do that in Christian circles? And he said, I never knew you. We had no relationship. You didn't grow an inch. You learn how to manipulate and how to act on the stage. And you learn how to make people think that you really care. And you went through all the antics and you prayed over all those prayer offerings and in your TV and you gave people the, oh, they just looked at what you were and they thought you were so much. And yet you were a zero inside because when Jesus knocks on this door, ain't nobody home. You see, money does a bad thing to people. If I could just win the lottery, $160 million, woo, this is what I would do. And we wouldn't see you much anymore. And be a whole new crowd of people hanging around you. Or you get a nice inheritance. You got money now and you start doing other things you wanted to do. And strangely, those other things take you away from God. And once you get that money, you're sure everybody's trying to get it. So you get this attitude of stinginess and tightness. Ask any of these guys that work in the world out there and all the different things you do. When you work for a lot of wealthy people, you hardly get paid because it's so picky. And I'm sure you did it right. I mean, man, it's just so hard to do things because money has corrupted them and made them very carnal. They have so many opinions they think are so right and everybody should listen to them so much. Listen at this verse. And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. If you're counting on your money to get you to the kingdom, let me inform you this morning, it's not for sale. In fact, Isaiah said, You who thirst, come and buy without money. It's free. You cannot buy your way into grace with God. You can't do it. You can't buy your way into favor with the Lord. Money doesn't do anything eternal except corrupt you when it controls you. It's not wrong for you to have money. It's wrong for money to have you. It's when you can't let go of it that it owns you. It's when you worry about how much you've got left and whether or not you're going to get some more. That's when it controls you. That's when you begin to fail and that's when you begin to falter. Or you become a workaholic. You work all the time because your whole thing in life is making money. I want to be a millionaire. I remember a preacher once. A preacher friend of mine I knew many years ago. I have lost touch with him. I hear about him once a year somewhere, but I haven't seen him in many years. But he told me one time, he said, I want to make a lot of money. And that really bothered me. I didn't stand up and say, brother, you can't do that. I rebuke that. I didn't say that. Maybe I should have said something, but I didn't. But he wanted to make a lot of money. A year or two after this, I'd see him. He, we'd be talking as preachers talk to get together. And he went to a certain place and I think he's become a prophet now. He prophesies to people and he can buy prophecies and get one, you know, you get a thousand dollar one, or you can get a little hundred dollar one. He said, oh, I went to that church. I got a $50,000 offering from this one church. And I thought, there's not that much money in any church. How could you get $50,000 in an offering? You could turn the whole church upside down and shake them all for a half hour and you wouldn't get that much money on the floor. <laughs> it's by that appeal, that way you get it. But he had learned that, you know, preachers are guilty. If you want their money, you've got to you know, make them think, you know, God just showed me something. I'm putting this on, okay? <laughs> that 10 people here are going to put $1,000 in the offering this morning and that God is going to do a special miracle for you this week. 10 people in a lot of other places would. If one of you did here, shame on you. <laughs> shame on you. But people do that. Oral Roberts once prayed for $7 million. If he didn't get $6 million, he was going to die. I thought, sell a couple of those homes and a couple of your jets, and it's paid for. Divulge yourself of all your wealth and your riches, and you won't have to cry to us about wanting ours. 
I'm telling you folks, the love of money and what it does and how it changes people's lives and how it corrupts people and how it turns us into something else. Look what people will do for money. What did Judas do for 30 pieces of silver? For money. Now he's not a happy camper. You know, after he died. He's not a happy camper this morning. But he can't do nothing about it either. 30 pieces, 30 stinking pieces of silver to betray Jesus Christ. Woe unto him. It would have been better for that man never to have been born. Money. A lovely girl, a beautiful girl, in order to make a thousand bucks a night will become a prostitute. She'll sell her body to nasty people and do all kinds of nasty things. Whatever they'll pay for. If you got the money, we'll do it for money. I can't say what the end of that life is because there are prostitutes in heaven. They got saved. God can take the worst and most vile of people. You won't go to heaven like that, but God can save you. But can you imagine how much filth, how many unclean spirits come into people who sell themselves for money? For your performance, you got a thousand bucks. What good will it be? You might make a thousand tomorrow night, maybe another 10,000 next week. What good is it? You'll die in the midst of your days. And when you die, you face the most awful thing a person can face in this life, and that's hell. The sentence of death, depart from me. And you did it because of money. You got yours. Just like the preacher who made his fortune by appealing to people and deceiving people. He got his reward. He won't get it over there because he won't make it. He got his right now. And his was houses and cars and a vacation and a boat and a yacht and prestige and a book and a, and a picture on a lot of people's walls. That's all he got. And boy, life is like a vapor smoke. It's over and it's gone. And then you got hell and all of eternity to pay for. It is better for a man to have a little and have peace with God, Proverbs says, than to have a lot and to perish. How hard it is, he said here in our verse, how hard it is for a man who is wealthy, he that trusts in riches to enter into the kingdom of God, spends all of his time working. Listen to this in Proverbs. He that is greedy of gain troubleth his own household. His kids don't know him because he works all the time. And when he comes home, he's tired and he's irritable. Or she is. Trying hard to be a movie star, being famous, a comedian. A comedian will cuss and tell vulgar jokes that people will laugh and pay him to tell some more. They'll say anything you want to say because they put no value on their life. The prostitute puts no value on her body. The workaholic puts no value on his family. It's all about me and self and flesh. That's what the world does to people. And you can tell how much the world has affected you as Christians. When you hear the word of God and you wince, you say, oh, that's hard. And you begin to think the word of God is grievous. It's because of the world in your life. You're set in the world's ways and you don't want to change. And yet heaven is waiting for who will pay the price. Now, I'm not done. And thank God I'm not because we need to get into it some more. But I want to finish this and go into something else too next time. But just remember this today. God has promised to his people. God has promised to his people that he will supply all your needs that he will bless you when you go out. He will bless you when you come in. He will bless whatever you put your hands to. He will give you the desires of your heart. He said, ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. And he did not limit you to just asking for a few little meager things that I don't want to be greedy. He knows your heart. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Remember he said, seek first the kingdom of God and the world, seeking everything else. He said, your father knoweth that you have need of all these things. That's part of 
your testimony to your children, to your fellow brethren in the church who need to be encouraged and know that God did it for you, he'll do it for me. It works. It doesn't really have to. If it does, fine. Because you could be in some lonely country where there's nothing but a dirt floor and a few skinny chickens running around. And you could have peace and joy, and that's prosperity too. It's all a condition of the heart that God has affected and a heart which also affects others. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you this morning to minister and continue to minister to us, to teach us your ways, to know our thoughts and correct us, to prepare us to come into your kingdom. You've said we're already blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. So we pray for that heavenly touch this morning to be applied to our lives, that we would be blessed as we come in and blessed as we go out, that whatever we put our hands to will prosper, that you will give us good, clean hearts, good, faithful hearts. You would show us what it means to be loved by you and therefore to love others and the peace that passes understanding which comes from that. I ask you to bless us that way and continue to lead us to your throne. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.